Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is in what well, he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or life or death, or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. May I welcome you very warmly, especially one or two I can see who are joining us. And if you are here for the first time, whether in person or online, you are pitched into the midst of a battle royal for the very heart of a church and for the future of the Christian gospel in a nation. The contest is intense and the stakes could not be higher. This letter to the Corinthians was written obviously to Corinth and as we've seen, Corinth was not only intellectually privileged, she was culturally rich and economically influential. It was rightly said that all lead, roads lead to Rome. A large number of them passed through Corinth. So what happened in Corinth really mattered for Corinth, for Greece, for vast sways of the Roman Empire, and for the reputation of Paul and the future of Christian ministry. Now, I guess in the sense you could say that's true for any movement at its outset. Laying the foundations is key, offset by an inch or two at the beginning, and you'll be miles out before you know it. But if you know anything about the issues of this letter, you'll know that tackled later in the letter, there are legion, different matters, sexual morality, interaction with philosophy and religion of the day, what goes on in church, marks of authentic spirituality, and understanding of what lies beyond this life. I'm more and more persuaded that what goes on up front in this letter matters perhaps more than anything else. For before Paul can begin to address these other issues, interesting as they are, he has to establish for Corinth what genuine Christian leadership looks like. After all, how can he ever begin to address the problems if on account of a deeper problem that they won't even listen to him because they've got a different view of genuine Christian leadership, 
then they won't pay attention. So as Paul outlines the benchmark for genuine Christian work, we must listen up. As with Corinth, so with us. Will we accept authentic Christian work and authentic Christian workers, or will we be duped by those mixing worldly methods with their ministry? Now, I've got the benefit of the trainees at St. Helens having 1 Corinthians as their study text for this year. And so, as you can imagine, I have been cribbing shamelessly from the person who's in charge of that area of training, Tim Shepard. And he made this point to me earlier in the week, which I thought was very astute. It's not so much that they doubt Paul's qualification as an apostle. It's more that they won't accept or practice ministry in the shape of apostolic ministry. So the question is this, will this potentially influential church in this key city of the empire accept the Christian worker and gospel work that is molded by the gospel of Jesus Christ? Or will they accept Christian work only that is modeled on the standards of this world? So it, it strikes me then that there are two, at least two ways, and this is a topical illustration, in which a church can go off-piste uh, given the Beijing Olympics, um, in, uh, in, in this way. We can reject the apostle outright, that's Galatians, if you like, or we can reject the ministry of the apostle because it doesn't conform to a style of ministry in this world, and we want to dress it up a bit to make it look a bit more sexy. Now, you can see this emphasis on this world running through our passage today. Verse 18, if any of you thinks he's wise in this age, verse 19, the wisdom of this world. Chapter 4, verse 3, it's a very small thing that I would judge by, be judged by you or any human court. Tim and I have been debating this, and uh, Tim is almost always right, so uh, I'm, I, I'm interested to hear what you think about it. Is it that all the Corinthian church are of one mind in their wrong judgments? Or is it slightly more patchy? Now, chapter 3, verse 1, brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, makes it sound that they're all off track. And chapter 4, verse 14, similar as well. I admonish you as my beloved children. But then there are areas which you think, well, you might want to cut this church a bit of slack. If any among you thinks he's wise, some of you are arrogant. And so today, today I'm going to suggest that perhaps it's not quite as monochrome as we might necessarily imagine. I'm going to suggest that Paul is writing to this precious church not only to rebuke them, but also to win over and bolster those in the congregation who have not yet bought hashtag worldly ministry, but might easily. So that there are perhaps three types of listeners. They are the worldly who exercising worldly ministry, puffing themselves up on the basis of their worldly qualification. You must listen to me. There are those who are in danger of being swayed by the worldly. Might easily go that way. And then there are others in the Corinthian church who are standing solid, but need reassurance. And isn't that always the way? 
I mean, the Corinthian church has been rightly described as the most troublesome of all the New Testament churches, but is it also that they are highly troubled by this worldly style of ministry that's all around them and has crept in amongst them? Two points. One, you are God's precious temple, don't be bullied. And that's the first paragraph, verse 16 through 23. And you'll see that this paragraph begins and ends with one of the most exalted descriptions of God's church to be found anywhere in the Bible. And then in the middle, in light of the heady position of the church, there's a warning and a rebuke. How could you allow yourself to be so worldly and influenced, if you like, by the worldly? Let's begin with the exalted status in verse 16. It's an extraordinary and wonderful statement, isn't it? Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells within you? What Paul says in verse 16 is true of every individual Christian believer. No person can become a follower of Jesus Christ without the work of the Holy Spirit. Every believer is indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. Glance out of the corner of your eye at the person sitting next to you. They are a temple of God's Holy Spirit if they trust in Jesus. You cannot be more exalted, more precious, more special, more anointed. There are not degrees of Christian, levels of indwelling. The day you turn to Jesus Christ, God himself comes to dwell within you. That is an extraordinary truth worth dwelling on for the rest of this week. Earlier in uh, the 10 o'clock, they have a children's talk. They focused on this verse and they had little stickers and it just had God dwells within me and they were handing them out. God dwells within you. But then what Paul says in verse 16 is also true of the church eternal. It's a true statement of the everlasting assembly of God. There is no temple in heaven because God himself is in the midst of his people. All of his people through all of time gathered together around his heavenly throne. God dwells there. But what Paul says in verse 16, he says to the local believers in Corinth that they are God's temple. God's spirit dwells within them. And so what Paul says in verse 16 is true of every local church. And when I'm in the West Country, which uh, I was for a few days this week, by the way, it was a touch breezy down there. There There are about, when I go to church, I sometimes go to a church in Bodmin, and there are about 30 people who gather. Farmers, local workers, and so forth. Do you not know that you're God's temple? We meet in a community hall. See Phil Martin sitting over there. He leads the Moorgate Midweek Meeting. I'm not quite sure where they're meeting now. Don't tell me now, Phil, but we used to meet in the Amber Nightclub. It was really quite dramatic. You were standing in front of the bar with all of these whiskies and gins and all the rest of it behind you, and then 20 or 30 people gathered. Do you not know that you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells amongst you? Bishopsgate North, they used to meet at Dirty Dicks. They've now moved, I'm told, to the Tank and Paddle. That's where they're hoping to go, the Tank and Paddle. You can find them there on a, on a, on a, on a Wednesday lunchtime. 15, 20 people. God's temple. It would be a mistake to confine this only to the gathered assembly of God's people on a Sunday in a particular building. Any group of believers, however large or small, wherever they meet, on whatever day of the week they meet, at whatever time they meet, in whatever location they meet, is the dwelling people of God, dwelling place of God. He dwells there. And it would be a mistake to suggest that there are degrees of God dwelling amongst his people as if God dwells more amongst his people on a Sunday than he does on a Wednesday morning or a Thursday afternoon or a Friday evening. As if God were more present with us now 
than he is when we meet together at Starbucks midweek. But what Paul says of the church in verse 16 is extraordinary. God dwelt in his Shekinah glory in the temple of the Old Testament. Now God dwells amongst us in all his glory. The local church is the dwelling place of God. You look around at your small group on a Tuesday evening or your office-based workplace Christian gathering at your Christian union in your university or your school, this is the very dwelling place of God. And so verse 17, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Speak against God's people. Seek to do damage to a local church. You are playing with fire. But to the Christian church at Corinth, don't you realize who you are? You can't find a more exalted group on the earth. Nobody of people more privileged. Your royalty, your God's treasured possession. So then, verse 18, let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he's wise in this age, let him become a fool. You know, those who want to promote themselves as if they really are something, and those who want to push themselves forward in ministry on the basis of worldly qualification or, or their opinion on this or that, well, as if they really have now arrived, have completely failed to grasp with what they're dealing. Some of you remember V.J. Menon, who used to use this marvelous illustration of something slightly different, but it works here, the ant and the elephant crossing the bridge. And he, as they get to the far side of the bridge, the ant turning the elephant and saying, my, did we not move that bridge? We really made it shake. You know, how pathetic, how ridiculous. And that's where Paul goes in verses 18 and 19. The phrase in this age is key. Do not know that you're God's temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks he is wise in this age, let him become a more on a fool that he may become wise. You see, your PhD in chemistry didn't achieve God's dwelling amongst his people. Your book on philosophy did not establish the revelation of God's great work, that he should come and dwell amongst sinful people. This world's wisdom did not accomplish the salvation of sinners so that God dwells amongst them. Media presence, PR skills, clever wit, cultural analysis, none of these things make possible God dwelling amongst his people. So you think you're so wise according to this world's standards. I'm afraid, my friend, you are going to have to become a fool and start learning the weak, foolish message of the cross, because that's the only currency that counts, and it's the only currency that achieves God dwelling amongst his people. And so Paul returns to the exalted position of the church in verse 21 through 23. We could have a whole morning just on these verses. Again, I think I'd be hard-pressed to find a more exalted description of the church. Look at it, verse 9, 21. Let no one boast in men, for all things are yours. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's 
and Christ is God's. All things. The apostles and their ministry is for the sake of the church. Everything that goes on in the world is for the sake of his church. No army goes to war. No storm settles over a nation. No prime minister comes or goes. No monarch is embroiled in scandal. No, nothing in all creation is outside of God's purpose for the sake of his church. It's all moving for the benefit and the good of his local assemblies gathered all over the world. And if you belong to Jesus Christ, Christ, the eternal son of the father, the everlasting son, the eternal son belongs to the father. And so, Corinthians, given your exalted position, how come you're going to boast over the academic achievements or the book contracts or the congregational size or whether they have wowed the crowds at a university mission or whether they've traveled to speak at this, that, or the other venue? How utterly absurd. <laughs> now, I think if any parent with a child who's faced hostility or opposition at school will understand what Paul is doing in these verses. You know how when your kid comes home and they're being given a hard time, you say to them, darling, you're very, very special. <laughs> darling, don't let anybody tell you otherwise. Darling, you're so precious. Don't let anybody push you around. In every age, the church will be allured by ministry sires and ministry workers who profess to be Christian, but in reality do little more than ape the practice of this age. Actually, you'll see it from their Twitter feeds because they can't help but talk about themselves and their own qualifications. It's pathetic. And when such ministry starts to prevail, true ministry of the Christian gospel will be in danger of being, well, having its head turned. And so we need to grasp what it is that true ministry of Christian gospel ministry has established the precious church of Christ. And we must not allow ourselves to be duped. To boast in human achievements or to measure gospel ministry according to the standard of this world's wisdom is completely to fail to grasp the currency with which we're dealing. And then when you stop and think about it, this is so attractive because in the church there'll be no pecking order. <laughs> There'll be nobody puffing themselves up like they do out there in the world. I went to such and such a university, you must listen to me. And, oh, I work in such and such. And what do you do? Oh, I'm on the board of so-and-so. It's so ugly, isn't it? And so pathetic, really. It's like me skating alongside Camilla Valieva and suggesting I really am something because I've stayed upright all the way around the track as she does her, you know, four flip-flops and a quadruple something or other before falling over, but we'll put that to one side. And these verses make me more and more persuaded that the issues we're dealing with here is worldliness in the Corinthian assessment. Someone said to me last week, it's not so much that they're wicked, it's just that they're worldly. They judge their Christian workers and ministry leaders according to the number of degrees they've got, whether they're able to quote from the Hollywood box office hits, and whether they want this or that, went to this or that seminary, and whether their face fits. It's so prevalent, isn't it? You go into a church somewhere, a new gospel worker comes, a senior rector or whatever it is, and their face doesn't quite fit. And there's, oh dear. Paul says, how utterly absurd. Now that's where Paul goes in chapter four. So 
the end of chapter three, that very key paragraph, you're God's precious temple, don't be bullied. Chapter four, we, the apostolic band, are God's trusted workers, don't misjudge. Now, I want to say these verses are acutely relevant for us as we think about the way people assess ministry. The spotlight shifts from the church to the apostolic band. I say apostolic band because throughout Paul is including Apollos amongst himself and the apostles, and Apollos was not an apostle, and so it's the apostolic band. Previously, Paul has defended the substance of his ministry. He did that at the end of chapter two, where he explained that he has the very mysteries of God because God revealed himself to the apostle Paul and the other apostles. Now he turns to defend the shape of genuine Christian work. And he's writing for a reason, and the reason is in verses 6 and 7. So just flip over the page, if you would, for a second, and look at verses 6 and 7, where he says, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. So you can see what's going on in the church. At least some in the Corinthian church consider themselves to be the special ones. It's so worldly as they puff themselves up in favor one against another. They're big-headed. And those who puff themselves up are doing so at the expense of the apostle. So how should we rightly assess gospel ministry? Well, verses 1 and 2, a job to be done. It's to be done faithfully. Verses three to five, a master to please, he alone will judge. A a job to be done, it's to be done faithfully. A master to please, he alone is qualified to judge. The job is there in verse one. And it's a brilliant piece of writing because Paul uses a word that he hasn't yet used for servant, And the word means literally under oarsman. Okay, you want to think of the pecking order of servants. The under oarsman is both literally and metaphorically at the bottom. This is how one should regard us as under oarsmen of Christ. We're to think of the slave galley with the oarsman below decks. We're to think of the skivvy, the lowest manual laborer. This is daisy from Downton Abbey. And that's how Paul sees himself in the church of God. Any suggestion of Paul puffing himself up or seeking to advance self is absolute anathema. He's just a skiv. And yet, stewards of the mysteries of God. Now, this verse itself, you know, we could spend all, all, all morning on this. This verse, stewards... Why, that is the household steward. He was the most senior servant left in charge of the master's property when the master went away. So we're just skivs, but we're Carson from Downton Abbey, Daphne from Rebecca. Because the task of the household manager was to look after the property and possessions of the master. And my job then is to steward rightly the mysteries of God. You can see the language. It's all service from the bottom to the top, as it were, in service. And Paul, the great apostle, 
who was entrusted with God's revelation, we saw that at the end of chapter two, can now describe himself as a household manager and a skiv in the same breath. And the mysteries of God are categorically not the sacraments. <laughs> They're what Paul talked about at the end of chapter two, the revelation of God. How then are we to judge a gospel worker? Well, the answer is there in verse two. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful, of course. And so the issue is not numbers or budget or internet presence or letters before or after the name or ecclesiastical titles or articles published or commendations received. What we're asking about a gospel worker is this, are they faithful? Do they see themselves as under oarsmen? Or do they puff themselves up and promote other achievements than the raw gospel of God faithfully proclaim? You look at Twitter feeds and just ask yourself what's going on. But that's not the only criteria. And I can just imagine somebody saying, well, there must be some other criteria. And Paul alludes to another one in verse 3. You can see it there. Verse 3 and 4. With me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I don't even judge myself. For I am not aware of anything against myself. Let's be clear then that Paul is not suggesting that gospel workers should be completely unaccountable to anybody. He makes it clear here that his conduct stands scrutiny. And we will be aware of ungodly behavior by gospel workers that's caused enormous damage to the Church of Christ over the last few years. A Rabbi Zacharias, a Bill Hybels, Willow Creek, Mark Driscoll, and others much, much closer to home. We are given proper mechanisms to investigate such, few of which have been deployed, incidentally, in more recent issues in England. But from verse 3, we can see that Paul is not aware of any such claim against himself. He opens himself up to scrutiny, but he's not aware of anything against himself. And with that in place, then the genuine gospel worker has only one bar of judgment. Assuming there's no ungodly activity or unbiblical practice, all assessment and judgment is left to God. Now look closely at verses four and five and see the extraordinary wisdom here. I'm not aware of anything against myself. I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. So even if you can say, you know, I'm squeaky clean, I've been as faithful as, it's the Lord who judges. Don't pronounce judgment before the day, the time. When the Lord comes, he will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the very purposes of the heart. So you see, there's a place in assessing gospel work that we are not to dare to tread. The purposes of the heart. And when you stop and think about it, motivation, it's so mixed, isn't it? Don't go there. It's so objective, isn't it? Is he faithful? Is the conduct pure? And that seems to be as far as it goes. Leave to God the motive of the heart. 
And you will notice that there's any amount of getting the scalpel out and trying to probe into what was X's motive at this point and what was their motive at that, what was the purpose of that. You have no idea. Think of the purposes of your own heart. And then, therefore, there is a real present sense in which the genuine gospel worker should be able to say, I don't really pay attention to what the congregation thinks of my sermon. Now, you can get into danger here. I mean, this is not an encouragement just to be a prat. But there is a real sense in the that the genuine gospel should be saying, actually, if I've been faithful, my conduct is pure, and I've sought to think, do things rightly before the Lord, then what the congregation makes of the ministry is their issue. A friend of mine preached his first sermon. It was quite a well-known church overseas. The vicar was quite a well-known public speaker around the place, and he was hoping for some feedback. Nothing came. Day one passed, day two passed, day three passed. And he was wondering what about how it did. Did it just bomb completely? Was it absolute shambles and a shocker? And he didn't tell me how awful it was. Did it tank? Day four came. He came up and rather nervously said to the incumbent, um, you know, do you think my talk was all right? To which the incumbent replied, you preach to an audience of one. Now, you can pick that apart if you want to be a pedant, and there are all sorts of ways in which you can pull that apart. But ultimately, only one verdict counts, the Lord's. And this is immensely liberating and profoundly challenging. It's immensely liberating because so many Christian workers suffer from what is known as CCS, Competitive Comparison Syndrome. And so many small group leaders and even church wardens and Christian families in churches and gospel workers in different churches and different churches from different churches, church to church, suffer from CCS, competitive comparison syndrome. We're not as wealthy. We haven't got so many staff. We're less articulate. That small group leader is more charismatic and on and on and on it goes. And actually, at the end of the day, it's the audience of one. And looking sideways like that leads either to the ugly sin of envy or equally ugly self-pity or pride. But it's also very challenging, isn't it? Because even our hidden motives will be laid bare by God himself at the time. And so it's right that we ourselves are considering our own motives and it's also challenging, I think, for us at St. Helens, surrounded as we are by businesses where targets and measurables are absolutely the way in which success is judged. See, take the key performance indicators which the city so loves or measurable outcomes that the city is so concerned about and ask yourself, do they actually measure up according to this assessment here? Might it be possible to be thoroughly worldly, really rather Corinthian, in the way we assess ministry? Is he faithful? Well and good. Does he see himself as an under-rower? Exactly right. Is he a steward carefully presenting the mysteries of God precisely? Is there any evidence of misconduct? No. That's it. how attractive this would be in a church. Not does he make me laugh, 
Has he got a church of 5,000? Has he the wisdom of this world? Have they planted 15 new congregations? Are there 680 new partners? And so on and so forth. Are they faithful? Skivs. I'm going to close with a letter to St. Helen's Church. Insofar as St. Helen's has practiced and benefited from gospel ministry, such a church will always be subject to ugly, worldly bullies. And St. Helen's, I think, has its fair share of that. Dear beloved congregations of St. Helen's, Insofar as we have benefited from and practiced gospel ministry, modeled on and mirrored by the Apostle Paul, we could not be more precious to God. He himself dwells amongst us. We are to him very, very special. We are Christ's, and Christ is God's. Be aware, please, that worldly workers will arise, even from amongst our own number. We must not allow them to bully us or bring us down. We must not play their game. We must not boast in men. No matter how much we like or admire this gospel work or that part of the ministry or this speaker or that speaker, they're only human. This is how we are to judge. Are they faithful? Is their conduct pure? Please let us not tread into areas that God alone knows. It's beyond our pay grade. And please be warned of this one thing. If, God forbid, some have sought to destroy God's precious church for their own ends, God will destroy them. I'm going to lead us in prayer. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Father, please write this truth into our thinking as we consider not only ourselves individually, but ourselves collectively. Grant to us that same analysis of what you are doing in your church. Please forgive us where we have judged in a worldly way. We ask that you would cleanse us of such sin. Please keep us faithful in the ministry we exercise each one of us. And we pray, our Father, that you would keep our conduct pure. We pray that as individually we think about our own motives, you would enable us to be pure in what we do. And we ask that in your kindness, authentic gospel ministry will be established here for your glory. Amen.